Tall Tales and True is produced on Wurundjeri, Yagara and Turrbal land, and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Are you a rebel? I'm Ahmad Fazal, and if you don't already know, I've done some pretty rebellious stuff in my time that involve holding rank in an outlaw motorcycle club. But I'll tell you more about that as the series goes on. This is Tall Tales and True, the show that brings you the best of live storytelling from around this country. And this season, it's all about rebellion. When I was curating this season, I was seeking out stories that reckoned with my understanding of rebellion. Stories of people who rebelled because they wanted to or because they had to. But our first storyteller found himself in the midst of a rebellion, an awful riot, during an ugly chapter in Australian history. Jordan Shea reflects on his bond with his grandmother, his Lola, and growing up Asian in the Shire. Recorded live at Queer Stories on Gadigal Land. This is Jordan Shea. I grew up in the Sutherland Shire. If you weren't good at sports, surf or racism, mm -mm. (laughs) you weren't good at much in the clear blue eyes of the suffocatingly dense white population there. The Shire is on Tarawal land, but the celebration of Captain James Cook would make anyone forget that. He is everywhere. Council chambers, library, the beach, hell, they'd probably put him on their money if they had the chance. Being Asian in the Shire was a bizarre concept. There were three Asians in my primary school. Alan Good, Daniel Lee, and myself, Jordan Shea. The most Anglo names any of us could get given. (laughs) On paper, you'd think the whole school was whiter than the royal family. But I tell you, being queer and Asian in the Shire, (laughs) well... How could a kid like me fit in, in his foul, green soccer uniform, re-watching the beauty school dropout number from Greece about 40 times before being conscripted to soccer training on a Tuesday night? There had to be someone, something, that made me feel totally okay to be different. Even the other Asian boys at school started making really heinous jokes about SARS. Do you guys remember SARS? COVID's old, ugly twin sister from a while way back and they even spoke in accents and all that. As I got older I realised we were conditioning, assimilating, striving to fit into a world we were entirely foreign looking in. Hectic. But there was still a part of me that felt entirely wrong to celebrate my Filipino culture. A part that staunchly tried to protect it from getting out amongst the plethora of alabaster faces in the suburb and at school. Enter Lola. My grandmother, or Lola, the Filipino Tagalog term for older female family member, be it an auntie or a grandmother, was born in 1930. She lived for some 91 years later, and in my childhood she was no featured extra, but a star. Oral storytelling is very vital in our culture. It makes us up, our histories, our futures, ourselves. Often, on a train from Blacktown via Central, then back to Karingbar, she would recount a graphic invasion by forces in her hometown in Vegan. She would talk of the way her and her mother and her sisters would go up the caves, rub dirt on their faces and hide to avoid the totally and utterly unfathomable. Looking back, I remember she was triggered by what she called other rice, not Filipino rice, other rice. 
Rice that was plain, unflavoured by garlic. She was by no means a warm grandmother. I'd hear the tales of warm grandmothers. Nan, Nana. My Caucasoid mates would go to their places for the weekend, <laughs> overnight or in the school holidays. They would feast on happy meals, watch movies rented from Video Easy and could get away with murder. Lola and I stole grapes from Coles, <laughs> watched The Young and the Restless, listened to Little Richard on cassette, and if I so much as talked back to her, she could cast a typhoon over my childhood in a heartbeat. But I loved it. My childhood with her was scanning the back of receipts for a grossly discounted KFC feed while waiting for her at Canley Vale RSL while she had a slap on the pokies. Pindot. And her style. Oh, man, her style. Everyone's grandmothers would pick them up from school in some kind of really garish tracksuit, some kind of blouse purchased off the rack from Westfield with the same greyish hair. Mine would pick me up, tight black sweater, crisp black suit pants and sunglasses that made her resemble a blowfly. <laughs> no matter the temperature, no matter the rainfall, that's what she'd pick me up in. And don't even think about affection. Oh no, don't. She had a habit of slapping me on the back joyfully, no matter what the occasion. That's what she did until the very end. There was part of me that was a touch embarrassed by her when she picked me up. I begged her to wear some colour. On Sunday, she'd put something on to please God. He got all the good colours. <laughs> the pickup line at my school got my grandmother looking like she was in mourning every day of her life. Embarrassment did seep in in my adolescence and eventually my cultural pride was turned down to a very gentle simmer. I never expressed it outwards, but I did my best to ignore her, to forget about her. She picked up on this and she just kept hanging around. December 11, 2005. Tarawal land, the Shire, is famous for something that everyone can try and get into, visit, the beach. Cronulla Beach in particular is huge. Leading up to that day, I remember sitting in my dad's Toyota, listening to caller upon caller, ringing in to Alan Jones to voice their absolute hatred for the other. It was terrifying. I was a mixed race kid at 12. I wasn't really looking for a definition of racism, but I found it all around me. I remember hearing Jones read out text messages he got a hold of rallying white supremacy. His actions hurled a Molotov cocktail of bigotry into an already pretty horrid situation brewing at the beach. I had finished Year 7 a day before the riots. Then, that morning, I was instructed to go with my Lola to Cronulla. Groceries, I think it was for. Keep in mind, this was 16 years ago, before any kind of immediate broadcasts of what was going down there. I didn't have a mobile, nor did she, so there was no stopping us. We didn't speak much that day. I was too busy glued to my Game Boy. We lived two stops from Cronulla, and the journey was always ever so quick. The heat, I remember, was palpable. When my Lola turned up, I recall her face looking different. She looked more stoic. She looked as if she'd seen some shit. Or maybe it was the fact that almost 64 years earlier to the day, she'd watched ships invade her home. We took the train. Now these days, I see hundreds of thousands of people at rallies for different causes. It's breathtaking. What is beautiful about these sites is that more often than not, the bodies there are diverse, the faces are diverse, the crowds are made up of the fabric of this stolen country. When I looked out the window, I saw an ocean of hatred. Cases of beer resting on their shoulders, not an ethnic person to be seen, 
except for next to me. They were a hungry mob, filled to the brim and primed to take us on. The train pulled in and the doors opened. The anxiety in me grew and I still get the same anxiety in mass crowds today. I looked at my Lola, she looked at me, the blowfly sunglasses concealing her darting eyes. This 75-year-old woman knew we were both in significant danger if we were to go anywhere near the mob that grew bigger and bigger. Cronulla has one platform. One train goes in, one train goes out. Lola must have been desperate for groceries because she told me gently to stay on the train. I tried to speak, but nothing came out. I tried to move, but nothing happened. She walked off the train so easily. I watched her go around the crowd. The doors closed and the train took off. About an hour later, two young men were brutally set upon and attacked by the mob on the same train we were on. I remember praying that afternoon, not to Frankie Avalon, the teen angel from Greece praying, but I remember praying to her, my Lola. Somehow I knew she would be safe. From that day, we had a totally unmistakable bond. We never talked about what we saw. In fact, a lot of my family didn't know she saw what she did. When I was interviewed by a newspaper for one of my plays, I spoke about the experience for the first time, two years ago. I spoke about how lucky we were. To this day, I still think it could have gone so horribly wrong. Things changed between us because of that day. We became a small part of history, and she became a bigger part of my life. I was no longer embarrassed of her or my culture, and in fact, it informs all parts of my identity and my practice. When she died three weeks ago, part of me did as well. But part of me also knows fully well that the shared experience we had as Lola and Apo, grandmother and grandson, formed us both. What binds us and our elders together is experience. And in a way that I try to understand every day, I'm so glad that I shared it with her. Thank you. That's writer Jordan Shea sharing his story for Queer Stories, an LGBTQI live storytelling event and podcast. For more stories like this, go to queerstories.com.au. Jordan's story captures the timely idea of how rebellion can be weaponized by bad faith actors. And for Jordan's grandmother, it was a sentiment all too close to home. I'm Ahmad Fazal, and if you liked that story, if you like live storytelling in general, I bet you have a friend who likes it too. Let them know that Tall Tales and True is awesome. It's free and it's available in the ABC Listen app. Are you ready for another story? In our next episode, rebellion is a part of growing up, right? But what happens when your rebellious behaviour puts everyone else in hot water? There I was, covered in my own vomit, <laughs> lying on the floor in a bus stop, with my head propped up on a beer can. Now, rather than face the music, I did something awful. When the police riot van pulled up at the bus stop and my friends scarpered in all different directions, instead of telling the police where I lived and going off home, facing the music, I told the worst lie that I've ever told. You can hear that story right here. Just search for Rebecca in the feed. My stand-up was mostly me talking about experiences of racism. 
you know, and I had no shortage of material. A comedian and two ASIO agents walk into a bar. Sounds like a joke, but it's a true story. And the comedian, he's being questioned over the likelihood of his Islamic radicalisation while ordering the most expensive thing on the menu. Uh, we would joke about ASIO following us. We would have phone conversations pretending to be ASIO. We'd call up each other and pretend to be ASIO just to scare the other person. That's just one of the stories that we have for you on the latest season of Days Like These. The little nun said, What to be sure? You'd never be able to carry that. It's way too heavy. Just post it. And I felt so much guilt. I actually saw the bolt coming towards me. I thought, you know, someone's got me with a bazooka. I didn't think I had that many people I'd rejected. <laughs> Seeing her on the screen, this gorgeous little jelly bean, like, in my heart, I knew I had to give it a chance. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Join me on Days Like These, the stories about the day when everything changed. Well, they said, oh, there's something wrong with your home. And it's like, well, duh, right? Like I'm in a wheelchair. Episodes drop weekly starting February 9.